What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt, and welcome to another episode of The Diplomat on Newsweek. Today, I was glad to have a conversation with Bethany Mandel. Bethany is a conservative columnist who I first got to know during the 2015 presidential campaign. You'll hear more about that during our conversation. We discussed politics generally, the Republican Party, parenting. We had a guest appearance by Baby Mandel No. 5, and lots more. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I'm really, really pleased to welcome Bethany Mandel to my show. Just to give you a little background, back in 2015 or 2016, Bethany, who is just a great writer, was writing things that I actually didn't like about then Donald Trump. And uh, I'm a big believer in engagement, so I reached out to her through a mutual friend to see if I could at least sit down with her and figure out why she was writing these things. And she was very gracious and agreed to sit down with me, even though she had uh, two very young children. I actually remember, Bethany, the back and forth about how we were trying to fit it into your being a mother. And I said, you know, bring the kids with you to the meeting because I'm accustomed to that, having six kids. But in the end, we never actually met. So I just want to take us back to that time and understand, you know, what your what your feeling was about Donald Trump then? Has it changed at all since his presidency and, and since the Biden administration started? So why don't we kick it off with that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I remember I was actually going to come in with my kids in tow and I was like, I don't care. I hate Donald Trump. I'll let my kids destroy his office, whatever. And so I was going to and then uh, there were some safety concerns around Trump Tower. And my husband almost never does this, but he kind of was like, Bethany, I'd rather you not actually bring our children into Trump Tower because there's some safety concerns there. Um, So we didn't. Um, But yeah, I mean, how I felt about him at the time. So I, I understand how I felt at the time. And I don't fault myself for sort of how I felt. And I, there's no take backsies. Um, But I felt like he was a favorite among a lot of anti-Semites and a lot of white supremacists, and he did nothing to disabuse them of the notion that he was their friend and on their side and out for their interests. I kind of look back on how he how he behaved during that time with a different understanding. Um, I wanted him, and I think a lot of people wanted him at the time, to, to disavow them. I think that he understood, and I think that you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. I think he understood that going down that road of constantly disavowing ends nowhere. There is no, there's not enough disavowing and there's not enough, um, there's not enough bloodletting that makes him acceptable and palatable. Would it have changed my mind? I don't know. I, I, at the time thought, um, I thought very low of him. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think highly of him. So would that have disabused me of the notion that he was a scumbag? I don't know. 
Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I think that one of I, I I think that his best quality is also his worst quality, and it's his stubbornness. And he said, "I'm not I'm not going down that road. I'm not. You're not going to make me apologize for things that I have nothing to do with." And I think that that can be a frustrating um, sort of perspective and and how how he operates, but it's also how he was able to put an embassy in Jerusalem and say, everyone was telling him, you're going to start a, a war in the middle. You're going to start a massive regional war over your stubbornness. And he said, no, I don't care. I'm done. Like, you're the experts who have accomplished literally nothing with your expertise. I'm done listening to you. And so he put an embassy in Jerusalem. There was no regional war. There was a lot of those things where he was told by the experts to do X, Y, Z, especially with his foreign policy, and you had a lot to do with that, and he ignored them. And it turns out the experts weren't actually experts. Um, So that's sort of how I felt about him at the time. I I mean, how I feel about him now is I was totally wrong for the most part. Um, I didn't love January 6th. Um, I didn't love everything that led up to that. but from a foreign policy perspective, which was probably among my bigger concerns, that I couldn't have been more wrong about. I was worried that he would waltz us into, like tweet us into <laughs> another world war. And it was quite the opposite. And now we're sort of looking at this, this administration's continuance of the appeasement and the bungling of the Obama administration and looking at the horror that is Afghanistan. And none of this would have happened if Joe, if Donald Trump were president. We would not have pulled out in this in this way. We not would not have left our allies in the way that we did. Um, so, I mean, I would say I was like 85% wrong. Well, credit to you for for saying that. I appreciate it. And, and I remember after I left the White House, you actually sent me a lovely email. It's one of the emails I cherish the most because we were able to engage in that sort of back and forth and understand that um, there are sometimes, uh, there's an evolution in one's thinking and, um, I hear you and I, I agree with all your points. Um, I think his tenacity is remarkable. I think if he didn't have that tenacity, we wouldn't have those foreign policy successes, but I also recognize those who wish he were stronger in condemning where I come out on this, Bethany is, um, I was in his office when he did condemn, for example, David Duke, and he did it very, very strongly and he did several condemnations, but it is never enough. It's never enough for some because they use it as a political tool. Uh, It's never enough for others because he could spend all day talking about it and then not getting to other important issues. This was an important issue. The attacks on journalists, yourself included, the anti-Semitic attacks were so so heinous, but uh, he had to talk to everybody. So I I kind of disagree with you on the heinousness of those attacks. I I think... Again, now looking back on it, um, it was, so first of all, it was ignored when it was just Republicans. When all of these Twitter accounts were targeting myself and Ben Shapiro, it was not news. It was when the primaries were over and the attacks expanded to the mainstream media reporters, then suddenly the ADL got involved. Then suddenly they were like, okay, this is a serious issue. Meanwhile, I had been privately trying to reach out to the ADL for two months probably, saying like, hi, I'm a Jewish journalist. This is what you claim to do. Do you have any resources? Um, And I didn't hear back from the ADL. I heard from the Jewish Federation and they put me in touch with people 
um, privately to sort of have a conversation about personal safety and and how we should operate as a family. Um, but now I sort of I, I I don't know how how much we should have gone to eleven on those. Um, and I think that we did. I, I think that they were um, they were bots. They were Twitter accounts. And I think that there's either from Russia or China or both an attempt to destabilize America and make us feel like we all hate each other. And I don't know how much of that is real. Um, I, I Was my actual physical safety in danger? Probably not. I'm glad I have guns, but... Very interesting take. I hadn't considered that. And you're right, there probably were a lot of bots involved in that whole destabilization has come to light in such a big way. So interesting take. Bethany, you've been involved in politics far longer than me. I, you know, I sort of happened to fall into it because the guy I worked for ended up running for president, and then lo and behold, I'm in the White House. <laughs> the future of conservatism and the Republican Party uh, seems to be in play right now. Where do you see it? How bad is that for the party? How bad is that for America? So I think that we need to have sort of an honest conversation with within ourselves about the post-Donald Trump moment. Um, I I think that a lot of people came to the Republican Party because of him that don't necessarily align with our values as we've sort of pushed them over the last several years. And I think that there's also a very large part of our party, thinking of like the Bill Kristol wing of the party, that maybe never believed everything that they said they believed. And they liked being power brokers. And so when Donald Trump came onto the scene and he's like, I'm I'm not really interested in your political expertise that has gotten exactly zero people elected, but thank you very much. Um, ni- neither side was really interested in the other and, and for good reason. Um, so now we sort of have to think about what the party looks like and what we believe post-Trump, um, because now we have a lot of people within our circles that are, are new, like yourself, who, who never really thought about these bigger policy and, and ideological questions. And we also have to deal with the remaining sort of the, the people who are not numerous in number, but have a lot of outsized influence. And again, I'm thinking of like the Bill Crystals who controlled this movement for a, a large number of years. And I think that um, I think that Trump had a way of showing everyone's true colors for what they were. And for folks in the establishment, it was like, oh, they didn't actually believe in a lot of what they said. Uh, Max Boot is another one of these. Jen Rubin is another one of them. A lot of these these thinkers um, completely changed everything they thought because of a guy they didn't like being in the White House for four years. Um, so I, I think that there's uh, there's going to be a, a realignment, um, bringing some people in while sort of walking away from, from the establishment. And I'm not sure what that looks like, but I know that I would rather have uh, folks who align themselves more with the Trump administration than with Jen Rubin and Max Boot. Because at least they believe what they believe. Yeah. And, and the showing true colors really sticks out in what you just said, because having lived and breathed Washington for almost three years, I can tell you there are a lot of people who don't show their true colors. There's okay. so much agenda. There's so much deception. And, you know, people may criticize President Trump for 
how he spoke, and I'm not going to defend his every tweet and things like that, but you knew what he felt. And uh, yeah. it may be uncomfortable, but I'd rather know what somebody feels than have somebody stand in front of a microphone and give me a bunch of garbage that they don't really yeah. believe in. And what was really sort of disturbing to me was watching people involved in these campaigns about bringing Trump down and, and making sure that Joe Biden were elected and all these things on the right. And then at the same time, getting calls from their offices. And I, I like, I don't, I don't want to like blow this person up, but someone within their, their circle, their professional circle and getting a call. Are you friends with anyone in the Trump administration? Cause we really want to um, sell some ads about this. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Because you're treating Donald Trump as this existential nation destroying civilization ending problem. And you're coming to me because, you know, I'm sort of friendly with some people in the administration because you want to sell some ads. Like, I, 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 it blew my mind and really sort of made me question everything because the way that they talked about Trump and the way that they actually dealt with him on a interpersonal business, it was very different. Yeah, I think people don't, many people don't understand what you understand and what I now understand and didn't before Washington is that you have this uh, terminology, deep state. Let's put that aside for a minute. That's government. But there is some sort of deep um, media slash influencer slash beltway yes. movement that isn't necessarily out for the best interest of the country. They're out for their mm -hmm. own self-interest. And so much of what people consume in the media or here at the water cooler isn't actually true. Yes. Yes. Um, one of my favorite stories um, was someone who was at a an event at the White House about um, and something that nobody ever covered. Uh, right. I mean, not rightfully so, but understandably so, given their agenda was uh, President Trump's sort of focus on uh, opioid addiction and overdoses and, and all of those sorts of issues in the beginning of his presidency. And someone was at the White House who had a personal connection to the issue and uh, was really moved by the president's interest in it because prior administrations didn't care about addicts and didn't think they mattered and didn't care about addiction. And uh, he sat there and, and was not a Trump voter, was not even a Trump fan. He was very on the fence about even going. And he went and he walked away from it feeling really good about it. And then he saw the press coverage the next day. And it was about something that the president had said that he just sort of like badly phrased it and then immediately sort of was like, I, that's not exactly what I mean. I, like He clarified what he was saying. And that tiny little soundbite was what the coverage of that entire day-long event was. And he, he was like, they don't care about dead people. They don't care about addiction. Like they sat there with me covering the entire day. They sat there waiting for that one soundbite that they could take to blow up everything that he did. And this was worthy. This was worth covering. And this is uh, destroying thousands and thousands of American families and lives. And they didn't care. They, di they didn't care about any of it. They cared about the soundbite. And all it was about was destroying Trump and giving him bad press coverage. And um, 
And that's sort of really instructive. What, what I find really interesting is following all of the Instagram accounts. I mean, everyone sort of looks at Twitter, but Instagram is really an easy and interesting way to look at how journalists um, consider all of these things. Thanks for the tip. I'm going to look into that myself. Because they all hang out together. Let's uh, let's talk about politics generally. So I wasn't involved in politics, didn't follow it much, and perhaps naively thought the country gets along, right? Things work well on Capitol Hill. Things work well between the administration of Capitol Hill, and it probably never did. But I do yeah. think um, in the recent past, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Has it gotten worse, or is that a misconception of mine? And can it be fixed? Should it be fixed? I mean, I, I don't think it ever really worked. I mean, so... When I, I, I've had a couple stints in Washington also. I'm, I'm fairly young also. I'm 34, 35. I think I'm 35. My kids are looking at me 35, yes. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly young as well. I remember my first stint in Washington sort of watching the rhetoric of the Republican Party going to an 11 over Obamacare. And that was what really got me interested in politics. And then I started working within conservative organizations. And then they like, no one was really as upset or as worried as they claimed and seemed to be. And, th and then when we had control of both houses and Donald Trump, what happened to Obamacare? Nothing. Let me just take a moment to welcome the adorable baby Mandel number five to the show. So glad you can join us, number five. Bethany, in 2017, you wrote an article for the forward. We need to start befriending neo-Nazis. What prompted you to write that and what happened after you wrote? So it was a little bit surprising. Uh, it was not something that I normally write. And, and I said in the piece, it's not necessarily something that I totally believe or do in my in my day-to-day -day life. Basically, the argument was um, the way to change people's hearts and minds away from hate and intolerance is to engage with them and treat them as human beings and to let them sort of have that airing of grievances. Um, and then just sort of, I mean, from my perspective as a Jew, show them that Jews are human beings and that we are good people and that we're, you know, we put our pants on the same way and we're not terribly interesting people. Um, there's no, you know, vast conspiracy on our end. We can't even agree. And you know, the, the famous joke is, you know, you have, Two Jews on a on a deserted on a deserted island and three synagogues, because uh, that's how little our people can can agree about things. Um, so so the response to the piece I I thought would be sort of being made fun of by the right, like oh that's that's really sort of um, hippy dippy and and touchy feely. Um, but I actually got completely destroyed from the left, who took a screenshot of the headline and the headline alone and and basically just said I was a neo-Nazi. Um, and it's funny because uh, I have written none of my own headlines. No writer ever writes their own headlines. But I jokingly suggested the headline to my editor, uh, Batya Unger Sargon, who was at The Forward and is now at Newsweek with, with y'all where this podcast is hosted. And she has forever felt apologetic about it. Um, and I'm, I told her, I was like, yeah, I've literally been involved in one headline in my entire career. And it was that one. And I suggested it as sort of a joke, not thinking that people would actually think I was suggesting becoming a Nazi. Um, that's actually not true. So I've written two headlines. The second headline was the follow-up to that piece about two years later. Uh, and Batya and my husband, Seth, 
really, really fought me against it. And and the headline of my follow-up piece was how the left turned me into a Nazi or how the angry left turned me into a Nazi or something. And it was basically just, you know, what I just said, how on, on Twitter and within these, uh, these circles, screenshotting that, sorry, you're going to hear my baby for the rest of this because he woke up. Um, screenshotting that headline became a way to dunk on me. Um, and it really just shows how incredibly bad faith um, many on the left, but also some on the right are. And, and the, the pot shots that people will, will try and attempt. And um, it's really pathetic. So I reread the piece again this morning, and I have to say, I'm a big believer in engagement, and I don't want to compare neo-Nazis to anyone, okay? But I do remember when I started at the White House that people were criticizing me for engaging uh, the Palestinians, President Abbas, Arabs in the Gulf, which was really just such an outrageous accusation. I mean, I was hired by President Trump and the administration to do a certain thing. And I said, I would engage with anybody if I thought maybe, maybe, maybe I could change hearts and minds. I'm not pretending for a second that you could change hearts and minds all the time. But clearly, as per your article, there were a lot of hearts and minds changed by uh, some people who really hated Jews. So I think it's great. The other thing I guess I learned from it, because I didn't know this background, is that once again, we see the manipulation, right? They took your headline, which, you know was not even suggested to necessarily be the headline. And that's what they use to attack you, to attack ideas. So it's, it's, um, it's something that now I will uh, ever more remember. Engage, engage, engage. Continue to teach my kids not to believe headlines and to do a deeper dive into all stories. So thank you so much for sharing that. So let's talk parenting. I, I love seeing on the screen uh, Baby Mandel number five. Adorable, by the way. And, uh, and I'll admit out loud that we just had a technical issue and I had my kids here helping me with my laptop and the podcaster. And, you know, they're just much faster than me. I'm sure I could have gotten to this point, but, you know, kids are just more technically inclined than I am. So I want to talk about being a parent. You know, we have six kids. You have five. Uh, our kids are, some of our kids are now older. One just got married, two getting married. But it's hard to be a working mom and, uh, and, 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 uh, I'd love to hear, I'm sure my audience would love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the technical difficulties because normally um, normally it's on my end and it's like a child has, you know, hit the mute button on my, on my headphones. Um, when you had that technical issue, I was able to change a diaper that really needed to be changed. So it all worked out for everyone involved. Um, but I, I mean, I think, I, I think that there's a couple... I, my, my biggest piece of advice to people um, is you can't do everything. You, you just, you, you can do everything, just not at the same time. So, and not particularly well either. I think that we all just sort of have to um, do the best that we can and be okay with our kids playing on our phone while we record a podcast, for example, or, you know, sitting in a poopy diaper for another 15 minutes. Um, but also just sort of, um, unapologetically saying, you know, these are, these are my needs and, and not, um, and not trying to hide our children for the sake of what we think other people might want. Uh, my husband for the beginning of his career had, um, had much less flexibility than he does now. And so 
if I were to have taken that meeting with you in New York City when I was living in New Jersey, I would have had to bring my children. There was just no other way around it. And instead of just saying no to you, I said, can I bring my kids? And no, I, I can think of maybe on one hand how many times I've I've had someone say no. And it's always for good actual reasons. My there there's a safety issue in um in this area and I can't have kids sort of running around. Fair enough. Um so I, I think that we as a society have hidden children away and um people like kids and um they don't mind seeing them on the screen, but you just sort of have to give people the chance to say like, I'm okay with that. So instead of hiring a babysitter to come over for an hour, I said to you, yes, but I mean, I'll probably be holding my baby during it. <laughs> Hopefully that's okay. Um, and that works out for me 90% of the time. The other 10%, it's an absolute nightmare and I just apologize. But I mean, stuff happens with or without kids. I mean, you, you didn't have a newborn on your lap when you were having your technical <laughs> issues and your technical issues happened anyway. So life happens and we're all just sort of doing the best that we can. And, um, and I, I think that people are understanding of it as long as we give them the chance to be understanding. I certainly hope so. I, I think of anything, this COVID work at home has reset us all. And, uh, you know, my wife who's a psychiatrist mentioned that she's been reading articles about how people never want to go back to the notion of missing that important soccer game or the school play. And I got to tell you, and I, I was that parent, I missed so much. I don't regret it because, you know, I had an amazing career and I'm grateful for that. But I hope that my kids have the ability to figure out how to balance. They won't be able to go to every school play and soccer game, but I, I'd like to be able to see them to go to some. You know, you're talking to a guy who, when our triplets were born on Thanksgiving Day, I was back at work on Monday morning, full speed ahead. But I love the idea of having parental leave. So, uh, yeah. you know, for, for my kids' generation. So I hope that, uh, I hope that it, um, it changes for the better in that way. Yeah, and I, me, I think that you're right. I think that it will. Let me ask you uh, one last question because uh, I know you have a hard stop at one because more kids are coming home, which is great. Tell me about cancel culture. I think it's horrific. I think it's so detrimental to our society. I'd love my listeners to hear your views on it. So there was uh, there was another cancel culture thing that happened over the weekend, um, and and I, news is still coming out. So I I don't want to I want to sort of go broad strokes because there's more details that are emerging. Um, so basically, a guy, uh, an African American guy, ran into a woman in the park. It's unclear what happened before the video was released, but what ended up happening was he tweeted a snippet of a video that he took in which the woman um, was sort of in his face. And he attributed that behavior of hers to racism on her part. And he went after her and her job immediately fired her without any sort of investigation, which they couldn't have done on a Sunday evening in five hours, which is how long it took them to fire her. Um, but now it's sort of emerging that, oh, they, they might've known each other in college and there was, there seems to be more to the story, which there almost always is in these instances. Um, and people are saying, sort of the smart folks that I follow on Twitter who know things better than I do, um, are saying, you know what, let her sue. Let her sue for wrongful termination. And let's see, let's see the courts handle these issues. And, I, I, and the, they're referencing the fact that Amy Cooper, 
who uh, was the Central Park woman who uh, was also fired because of a similar incident, someone taping her on online and posting it. Um, Barry Weiss covered it for her um, for her podcast and her Substack very well. Um, and Megan Phelps Roper, sort of a full circle thing. Megan Phelps Roper, who is now a good friend of mine because I referenced her in that neo-Nazis piece. She used to be the communications person for the Westboro Baptist Church, the like God hates fags church, and also God hates Jews church too. So she sort of, uh, and I, I talk about this in the neo-Nazi piece, she had a lot of engagement with Jews on Twitter who ended up sort of opening her heart and mind and she completely renounced Westboro and, and by extension her entire family because that her entire family were in Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, so now Megan works uh, with Barry Weiss on her Substack and on her podcast. And so Megan wrote a really uh, great piece on the Amy Cooper story, uh, which was the woman who was fired after someone took a video of her in Central Park while she was walking her dog. Um, and this seems to be a similar story. And so what Amy Cooper is doing is she's suing her former employer for wrongful termination. And um, and I think that that's the way to sort of hit back against this cancel culture stuff. Um, and, and in general, like all of these sorts of issues, the CRT issue as well, all of these things that conservatives are concerned about is to stop litigating it in the public sphere and start litigating it. And I, I think that they both have cases. And I, I hope that this second woman, um, who I'm not going to use her name because she didn't consent to becoming a public figure overnight on a weekend. Um, I, I think that both have a case. And um, and I hope that this dis discourages employers from throwing their employees under the bus, which is what has been happening. A lot for us to think about, a lot for us to improve our society, a lot for us to engage on. Bethany Mandel, thank you so much. And thanks to some of your kids for being <laughs> on the screen and entertaining me. And I'm sorry for my kid background on my Zoom thing. But hey, that's what you got to do, right? <laughs> Take care. Thanks, you too. Well, this was a fun episode, even though I had a technical issue with the podcast equipment. But Bethany took it in stride and even used the opportunity to tend to baby Mandel number five. I think Bethany's reflection on President Trump where she was back in 2016 and where she is now was very interesting. I give her a lot of credit for her self-reflection on President Trump. We had a chance to touch on the difference between real and fake in Washington, in the media, and elsewhere, and I hope people start to pay more attention to this phenomenon so we could all become better informed about the issues that are important to America and to the world. Of course, the parenting portion of the conversation and seeing Bethany juggling her parenting responsibilities with her job and her thoughts about being a working mom were meaningful to me. I have watched my incredible wife, who is a doctor, always try to balance being a working mom and raising six kids over the past 22 years, and I'm always in awe of her. I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to chat with Bethany, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it and other episodes with your friends, family, and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.